everyone. It's Sean Gibbons. Welcome back to my basement for the final day of the year, at least the final day that we're going to be together live. Everything that we've done together, as I hope you all know by now, is going to be available up on this platform where you're seeing me. Uh, a lot of it already is. So if in the next hour or two, I hope you're going to stick around for what we have just ahead. But in between, if you want to catch up on stuff or you want to come back to it uh, over the weekend, we'd invite you to do so. Really, everything up here live uh, or on tape, I guess, right? Uh, and then we will eventually, in case you're wondering, so I've got a few questions about this, we will make everything, everything is going to be up on YouTube so anybody and everybody can avail themselves of it. Just give us a couple of weeks to make that happen, but that, that, that is our plan. Uh, I am incredibly grateful and excited to bring you all back. Um, it would be a mistake for me to ignore what's been happening while I've been in my basement, what's been happening in our country this week. It's a lot. And I know, and hopefully you saw the email I just sent to you, one of the things that I take some hope and comfort in is the idea that this group is together and that we're all seeing what we're seeing and we're feeling what we're feeling. And we understand, and I was just saying this to all the folks who are gonna be with us in a moment for the equity panel, that if you can see it and you can name it, then you can change it. And I was reminded yesterday in a conversation I had, can't remember now if it was before or after that amazing conversation with Nicole and Stacy, Dr. Jones and I were having a little chat and he reminded me, because I was reflecting on, on all that's happening around the world and, and my deep distress, and I think everybody probably shares about the ruling um, or the lack of justice for Breonna Taylor and her family, which is hard to understand. Uh, he reminded me of these words, the words of Dr. King, if not us, who? And if not now, when? Uh, you are in for an extraordinary series of conversations today, so I want to get to it. You're either going to be watching the conversation that Berta Downs, our friend from REM, is going to be having with Janine Abrams-McLean and Rebecca DeHart of Fair Count. With some good news that I can share with you, which is that just overnight there was a judge ruling that the United States Census will continue. And the challenge here is, if I'm not an expert at the courts, I'm sure some of you might be, but you know that that's an initial ruling. There'll probably be a fight moving up through the courts, but suffice to say, right now it looks like the United States Census will uh, proceed through at least the end of October, which is good news because we don't want to leave anybody behind. That has to be who we are. We've talked to Trebian about who do we aspire to be, and I think as a nation, a part of our values is that we leave no one behind, or at least that's who we aspire to be, and that's who we want to be. So that's some good news. So if you're watching that, some good news to take into that conversation. The conversation about equity, I have a feeling is going to be a little bit tougher, but there are some deep lessons to learn from our friends in Atlanta, and we're going to get to that in just a quick minute. A little bit later today, you will have Susan Vandergriff, whose story is just extraordinary. Uh, she is a woman who lives in the southeastern part of Tennessee. Uh, I'm a Virginian by birth, and so I know that sits down in the corner of our state, uh, that area where she works in. It's Chattanooga and, and Appalachia. Uh, and she has just done some extraordinary work, having some conversations that I actually was talking to my wife and she's like, we're still talking about that now? Really? Uh, the work at Step Ahead Chattanooga won the Clarence B. Jones Impact Award. Uh, and they, they forged some conversations and built some bridges uh, on some subjects around women's health that were considered taboo. So if you're interested, I highly recommend making some time for that now or at some point later if you're not able to be with us. And then we'll close out the day with Joy Hargill, who is the U.S. Poet Laureate. She is a citizen of the Creek Muscogee Nation. She's gonna have a conversation with one of my favorite humans, Rebecca Arno, former network board chair. Uh, and I would like to, if you'll indulge me for one quick minute to take us out with a, a piece from Joy. I opened this week with one of these and I wanna close this out. It's quick, so indulge me. I saw somebody on Twitter 
complaining, but you know what? Listen, take a breath. This is good for you. This poem by Joy is called Road. We stand first in our minds, and then we toddle from hand to furniture. Soon we are walking away from the house and lands of our ancestral creator gods to the circles of friends, of schooling, of work, making families and worlds of our own. We make our way through storm and sun. We walk side by side or against each other. The last road will be taken alone. There might be crowds calling for blood or a curtained window by the leaving bed. It is best not to be afraid. Lift your attention. For the appearance of the next road, it might be through a family of trees, a desert, or rolling waves of sea. It's the ancient road the soul knows. We always remember it when we see it. It beckons at birth. It carries us home. With that, let's go. Good morning. Welcome to ComNet's first and maybe only ever the festival. Um, it's good to be here with you today uh, at the end of September. I will tell you right now, we're virtually recording this uh, early in September. So roughly three weeks from now, projecting ahead are some of the issues we're going to be talking about. And you'll see in just a minute why that last day of September is a really important one for the purposes of this conversation. I'm joined today in conversation by the two leaders of Fair Count, Janine Abrams and Rebecca DeHart. And I would like to ask y'all to tell us about Fair Count, its mission, its history, its, uh, its origin story, and what you're doing in, in, a, in a hurry. Uh, so whoever wants to start, Janine or Rebecca. Sure. You can go, Rebecca. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. We're so excited to be here on this conference virtually. And Bertus, we're really thrilled to be in conversation with you as well. All of us have such a great history with the state of Georgia and what we're doing with civic engagement and your history with the culture of Georgia and how you combine those two is just fascinating. So we're really happy to be in conversation with old friends and also sharing our story with new friends today. Um, I'm Rebecca DeHart, the CEO of Fair Count. Janine and I started Fair Count back in 2019. And Janine, I'll let you tell the story of, of how it came about because I think it's pretty interesting. Um, but we do work to ensure a fair and accurate count in the 2020 census in Georgia and around the nation. Um, we are anchored in Georgia. Our work is in many states. We have organizers in many states and we have probably done an effort in almost all of them now. But we really look at the census as the bedrock of democracy, this foundational piece, and we'll talk about this today about uh, what's at stake if we don't have a fair and accurate census. Um, but we also look at the census as a catalyst to bring people into civic engagement and to start building long-term organizing infrastructure between the census, redistricting, and voting, and keeping particularly historically marginalized communities 
at the center of this conversation so that we can really get more participation and have a more fair and, and equitable seat at the table. Janine, do you wanna talk a little about how we started? Definitely, and again, I just wanna echo uh, what Rebecca said. Bertus, it's great to be here talking to you and to talking to all the folks that are, that are viewing this. Um, so uh, Fair Count was founded by Stacey Abrams, who is my second oldest sister. Um, you may know who she is. And um, after, when she ran for governor of Georgia, after the election, uh, she spent a lot of time thinking about what she could be doing um, to help the state of Georgia, even though she didn't have the title. And of course, one of the first things that came up was voter suppression. Uh, and so she started the organization Fair Fight. But as we were sitting and you know talking and spending time together, she started talking about the census and why the census was so important. Because when she was a state legislator, legislator, um, she was her hands were tied um, to fight gerrymandering uh, that was happening in the state because the census wasn't complete and she didn't have the data to back up and to challenge the maps that were being drawn. And so my background, I, I'm, I was formerly at the um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I'm a scientist. Uh, and so I've, I've done population-based research for a long time. And so she asked me, hey, Janine, if you had to count everybody in Georgia, how would you do it? And I'm an amazing scientist. And so I was like, I don't know. I have no idea. Like, <laughs> I don't, I have no, I, I'll go do what I do best, do some research. So I did some research, came back with a few ideas. And she said, well, we need to start Fair Count and brought on Rebecca to head this effort. And here we are a year and a half later doing um, In the Good Fight for Democracy. So two, two follow-ups to that. Um, she, um, you're talking about earlier in her career, I guess, just after the 2010 census, mm -hmm. when she was pretty helpless, her hands were tied on being able to do anything about the maps because the census wasn't complete. What does that mean? What does it mean when a census isn't complete? And um, the second thing I wanna do is just highlight, how did she know about Rebecca to, to bring her in as the policy person, the mechanics of government person, Tell us a little bit about Rebecca's background for those who don't know it. Well, I'll start with the, the incomplete census. So in Georgia, we know that um, the, the census, uh, the 2010 census only counted around 72% of Georgia households. And with a population the size of, size of Georgia, you're talking about, you know, <laughs> that's a lot of people, uh, roughly 30% of folks weren't counted. And that, you know, that undercount uh, was seen across the nation, uh, especially in groups. We know um, in their groups that the Census Bureau refers to as hard to count. Uh, we don't like that term because it implies that there's something inherently wrong with these populations, including populations of um, and so racial and ethnic minorities, young children, the LGBTQ community, homeless persons, undocumented persons. Uh, we know that there's nothing inherently wrong with these groups. Uh, but that the systems that are in place to count them are inadequate. And so uh, that's why we're doing the work that we're doing today. And we, we also know that in Georgia and across the country, white homeowners were overcounted, so counted more than once. And all those people plus more, or those groups that I just mentioned, were undercounted. And so that's something that we're trying to uh, stave off this, this time around. 
But I will say, pivoting to the second part of this question is Rebecca, um, and she can tell you more about her work, but Rebecca, when Stacy um, introduced me to Rebecca, she, the idea was, all right, Janine, you do the data, and then Rebecca knows the state. She's the former executive director of the Democratic Party of Georgia, and she led the coordinated campaign um, in 2018, and she's just a phenomenal uh, political mind, even though we're not doing politics, but she just thinks about how all of these things are tied together and the ways that we can really engage people and mobilize people. And I'm talking like she's not here, so I'm gonna I know. let Rebecca. Um, <laughs> I'm gonna let Rebecca tell a little bit more about her background. <laughs> Thank you. No, it's okay. I keep going now. <laughs> that was, that was a good introduction. I mean, it was a great introduction. I'm blushing on camera. Um, thank you so much for that. I've, I've been lucky to know Stacy since she first ran for office back in State House and I lived in her district. And back then I was working for other political organizations. Um, I'm actually a social worker by trade, but for about 19 years now, I've been working in politics and public policy macro side, and as well as electoral policy to try and see uh, some long-term change get made. So I was um, ready to take a, a break from electoral politics. I had one of the longest serving executive directors of the state democratic party and it was uh time for me to let that go and to move on uh someplace else and so i was thrilled when stacy asked if i would come and head this organization it's by far the most fulfilling work i've i've been able to do to to date you know janine and i are just two of now what is our 37 member team uh spread over i think we have folks in eight states now and so we're we're really excited about what we were able to build but Bernus, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't also say in my history, both in a career as a person, but to say that I've also been a super huge REM fan for a long time. And I think everybody would love to know a little bit about your background, too. Oh, yeah. I, I've, I've been a pretty big REM fan for a long time, too, including right now. <laughs> That's good. Um, but I did end up having a, uh, a long uh, opportunity to represent those guys. Sort of early days, lawyer right out of law school, learning the ropes, growing up with them um, from literally being a fan and a friend and somebody who knew something about the music industry and was willing to learn more and kind of uh, help them run their business for a long, long time, including now, nine years after they broke up. In fact, this is the month, nine years ago, September, that they, um, that they decided that they'd done it long enough, 30 years, great career, great body of work, something we're all proud of, the legacy. Uh, and they still are, you know, in a lot of ways, they're they're close and it's it's just it was a very good decision for them as individuals and therefore as a group uh to not keep go to not keep going and so they still have uh you know their songs really mean something to people a lot of their stuff is still very timely uh they're still very engaged as as individuals uh and it's been a real you know it's been a it's been a great career for me um and it's kept me in a college town of athens georgia uh which has been a a, a good thing um yeah, which is not 365 days a year, which is fine too. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, to turn it back just for a second, I'm, we'll keep talking. We've got a, we got a while here, but I, I, I've learned something already today, which it doesn't surprise me when I heard Janine say that, um, that roughly 30% of the population in Georgia wasn't counted last time. I don't, I don't exactly know how you got to that number, but I assume there are ways to find that out. That doesn't surprise me. That doesn't shock me at all. It's, it's terrible. It, it disappoints me. It's sad. Um, but it does surprise me people got counted twice, especially um, white homeowners got counted twice. How do they pull that off? And how did that, how did that somehow happen? And 
I guess the other thing tactically I would ask y'all is what are you doing or what, what can you do as an outside group, a nonpartisan C3 non-advocacy group in terms of partisan politics, but how do you as outsiders, not with any official role, keep them more honest, I guess would be a way of putting it, um, at least on their toes. Uh, explain the dynamics of that. How did people get counted twice and others not counted at all? And what are you doing in 2020 as part of Fair Count to make sure that doesn't happen again? Um, so I can take the first part of that sure. and um, people may be able to hear my cat is in the background and he's super excited about this conversation. <laughs> he keeps meowing. Uh, but um, <laughs> um, so the way that people are overcounted is it say you have multiple homes and you count your family at all of those homes. You're only supposed to count yourself at the home that you spend the majority of your time in. But if you have vacation homes and you you count your entire family, that's one way that in, in uh, both homes, then you get double counted. Uh, but does that does that mean that the person has to affirmatively commit fraud? Do they like if you have a home in no, North I Georgia and you have a home in South Georgia, do you have to say, hey, count me both places or does it just happen? Does it, it happen passively? I don't think it's malicious. I just, you know, I do think that the that it happens that people do they, you know, they're like, oh, let me do the census, let me do it at all of these these homes. But really, the the purpose of the census, and this is from the Census count. Bureau, is to count every person one time and in the yeah. right place, not one time in all the places that I frequent. Right. Uh, and right. so it's really getting that message to people that they shouldn't be counting themselves at multiple homes. Another way that people are overcounted are college students. So when, uh, and this is becoming an issue uh, in the middle of the pandemic, but college students are being counted or can be counted um, at the college and then at their parents' homes. And so that's another way that you get, you get double counting. The Census Bureau does have mechanisms in place to deduplicate, but they're obviously not as effective as they should be. And that's one of the worries with the rush of the, um, and we can get into this a little bit later, but the census is being rushed to end a little bit early. And some of those checks and balances to deduplicate uh, are being are being rushed through, or not even uh, possibly not even being um, not being applied. And so there is the fear that there may be another um, massive uh, overcount of certain groups. And then as far as Denise, what we're okay. doing, oh, go ahead, Rebecca. I was going to turn. Was gonna say, if I could, if I could just jump on for just a second too about that. I mean, I think you just hit hit the nail on the head with it. You know, we're not talking about nefarious. That makes the this overcount happen. But what we're really able to see in this scenario, I think, is put a microscope on what systematic inequities look like in practice. You know, the census, it's this idea if we just mail something to a household, they'll return it. Yes, they may have more than one household, or maybe they had just returned it before the second mailing hits their house and they're like, oh, did they not get it the first time? I'll do it again. Or maybe the parents are split and both, you know, both parents answer um, for their kids or their kids are at college. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons why and why there's the deduplication that, that can take place. But that whole premise is based on the fact that somehow in America, families are stagnant homeowners who can receive mail over time and correspond with the government. And that's sort of problem number one, because a large majority 
people in America don't communicate that way. They're renters. They're, they live in weekly hotels. They are experiencing homelessness. They are very moving place to place. There's a large segment of America, roughly 5%, that don't even get the mail through the USPS. And the Census Bureau never even mails them the form. So that is how we start to see these, in, these inequities, because we have a system that's set up to capture information one way, but it's not the way that the majority of America can share information. And that's where Fair Count really kind of steps in to try and, you know, help and almost bring like the stepping stool to the communities, you know, that aren't able to be communicated with in the way that the government uh, is doing it, not because there's anything wrong with them, but because the government hasn't uh, created a more sophisticated method to do so. Now this year, the census was on, online for the first time, you know, majority um, there was pockets of it that were in 2010, but you know, they really pushed online. And for a large number of people, it was great. People went online, they got done with their census. But again, it was really great if you have, you know, like I have a, what is it, Apple fiber or whatever, my internet's super fast, you know, or if you have broadband or you have whatever, or you have an unlimited data plan where you're you know, it's comfortable for you to go on your phone, surf the internet, I'll take this survey really quickly. There's a large number of Americans who, you know, do not have broadband internet into their counties yet because it's very rural. Or maybe they don't have an unlimited data plan and have to be very careful with what they use that phone for. Maybe dial up is still going on and it, you know, it doesn't work well in that. So there's still just a large portion of people in America that sometimes get left out of the equation. And that's where is really interested. We're interested in these in in these communities because they haven't just been historically marginalized in the census for decade after decade, but they tend to be the same communities who are more often than not likely to experience voter suppression, have more uh, polling precincts closed down, um, have their you know views, needs, communities sliced and diced in the operation of redistricting, making sure that they don't have a voice and who it is that's representing them all the way from local you know school board up into Congress. And so there's an idea that if we can build more resources, if we can build more infrastructure in with the communities that have been left out of the story of America for so long, we'll have a better, more vibrant America with a democracy that is actually responsive to all instead of just some. Yep, that, that helps me understand it. You're, you're filling the gap between people and communities that have historically been just passed over. Maybe it's, it's not on purpose, maybe it's sort of kinda not a priority, but y'all are out there on the street level with the technology and with the know-how to make sure people get counted. And um, right. I, I also, the other thing I learned earlier today when we were just talking before the call briefly, which is I did not realize y'all had, you were doing some voter registration as well. Again, on a nonpartisan basis, you're not, you're not working for a party anymore. You're not, you're not on behalf of any particular candidate, but y'all are using this work. So that is some of the dovetail y'all have, I guess, with Fair Fight, your non-associated, but somehow at least historically related organization. Um, it's kind of one of those things where it's it's two groups that I think two years ago didn't exist, right? Or maybe maybe Fair Fight did exist two years ago, but Fair Count is is those are both brand new, and yet they're now kind of ubiquitous. Everybody knows what Fair Fight does, what Fair Count does, the differences. But in this case, y'all do have some some crossover in terms of getting people not only in the being counted for the census process, but in the voting process or the voter engagement process. 
A little bit. Um, we, we actually don't really engage much with registration. Um, there's a lot of laws in Georgia that govern registration, and there's a long history of secretaries of state and others throwing advocates in jail for trying to help people to register to vote or to vote. And so that is not something that, that we um, navigate at this time because we're so wholly focused on the census, which takes us to that okay. September 30th deadline you were talking about, Bertus. Um, but there's a great organization in Georgia called the New Georgia Project that has been registering hundreds of thousands of, of people a year. And so we're really excited about that. Fair Fight is also a C4 organization. And for folks in, in the audience that are um, uh, familiar with it, a C4 is a little bit more of a partisan organization. They have, um, they also have a PAC. We can't coordinate with them at all on election and we don't. Um, we're right. a nonprofit C3 organization, but we do do voter education work. And that is so important. If voting were easy in Georgia, we wouldn't make the headlines and the talk show circuits every time we had an election. There are so many disparities, nefarious efforts, ineptitudes that happen, and we feel really strongly about helping to take up that space on the C3 nonprofit side and help with you know, GOTV mobilization efforts, but also education efforts. And I'll just, you know, to, to tie everything together, going back to the origin story, um, and, you know, Stacey's hands being tied during the redistricting process, we consider um, the census voting and redistricting as the three pillars of democracy. Um, and that if we want democracy to, to live, because we know that it's in danger, if we want it to thrive in the future, that we have to make sure that we cover all three of these aspects. The census um, the decennial census, and there, just so people know, there is an annual census that's done. It's called the American Community Survey, and it's um, it only targets a few million uh, households in the in the United States. But um, it's done every year, and it's you might have heard it as the long form. But um, but the you know when you think about the decennial census, which is the basis even for the the American Community Survey, it only happens once every ten years. And even though there are three pillars, if the if the census fault is faulty or falters, and if it's trash, <laughs> we can't get <laughs> those data, and that impacts our ability, our power when we when we um, our ability to redraw redistricting lines, which distributes power and the power of our vote. And so, while they're all pill pillars and, and important, the census is the bedrock. Also, because if we don't get it right, then everything else over the next decade is going to be um, is going to be impacted in, in a negative way. Yeah. And that that's so true with resources, too. I mean, Bertus, you're you know, you're a public school advocate out there fighting all the time for education. All three of us are parents. All three of us, you know, have experience with the public school, although the public school happens on this desk right behind me right now for first grade. Yeah. But um yeah. You know, the census, our, our school systems are, are reliant on the census. When communities don't answer the census, that's how you get overcrowded classrooms because they don't count for enough and they, they draw the school boundaries different. Free and reduced lunch, Head Start programs, a variety of programs that go through our public schools. And so when you have communities, you know, historically undercounted communities that don't answer the census, then their schools suffer their hospitals suffer, their roads suffer, which is why the town just on the other side, you know, that has a much higher census performance, you know, their hospitals are, are more equipped, their schools are better, the roads they drive on can handle the thrust of their community. It's, it's really astounding 
that there's basically not anything in American life, democracy, and infrastructure that the census does not touch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's just part of the overall puzzle. And it's, a, as you say, it's a really critical piece. If you don't start from the right data, if you don't have the right count, then clearly needs are going to go in that. You're going to, you give a great example with the overcrowded classrooms or the roads. Um, so speaking of uh, the September 30th deadline, we've alluded to it a couple of times, the end of the third quarter, that does seem a little early for an annual census. I know that that's been a recent change administratively, like in the last few months, I guess. Um, but tell us about what is the plan for fair count before in the next five days after this conversation airs uh, from the up till the 30th of September? And what is your post September 30th plan? Do y'all just, that's it? We've done what we can do. We go home now. Or I assume that there's a post September 30th phase of your work. And how do you, what's unfolding? What are the mechanics of how what you do is interacting with the actual census and the count we're going to get? Whoever wants yeah. to take that one. I can, I can start. Um, okay. So actually the census was scheduled to end on July 30 or yeah, July 31st. Um, oh everything's been crazy, but um, so, but you know, we had a pandemic and because of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, the census bureau uh, and the administration said, Hey, let's delay this until October 31st. There's no way we can get the numbers, um, you know, and the, the analyses done before October 31st. So that was the plan, um, you know, and organizations out, you know, other advocacy organizations that are working on the census, they were trying to figure out how to scramble to get things done past July 31st. And, you know, we were making plans and made plans going um, until July 31st. And then on August 3rd, the Census Bureau did a complete 180. And they said, even though they've been saying for months that they didn't have enough time, they then said on August 3rd, actually, we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna finish the census with the, one of the highest uh, or lowest response rates going into, it's called um, the non-response follow-up period or NERFU. And that's where the door knockers start. So they had the lowest self-response rates before this the door knocking phase started. Um, there were issues with hiring and still continue to be issues with hiring. And they said, actually, we're just going to get it done a month early, which would be the shortest NERFU period in modern history um, and in the middle of a pandemic that is not waning. And so it's, um, it's, it's, it's been a shock for people, um, shock for groups that, you know, like us that we're like, how in the heck do you plan on counting everyone? And we're getting news now that, you know, the, the problems aren't going away. They're continuing to build. Um, I won't get into all of that, but we're in a, you know, we're in a, we're in a fight right now to make sure that um, communities don't get under, that communities are accurately counted. And the last, I'll throw a little bit of fat data at you. Um, and at the end of July, when we go back to communities that are historically undercounted, we know that Black, uh, Native American, Hispanic, uh, Pacific Islander, and Asian uh, predominantly, uh, communities that were predominantly made up of those racial and ethnic groups, were trailing over 10% behind in response rates than predominantly white communities. 
And this door knocking phase has historically been critical to get out the count in those um, in those in those um, those hard to count communities. And so with you with the government and or with the Census Bureau and the administration saying, well, let's just cut it short by 30 days. You are you are basically you know, sentencing everybody to a, a bad census. And so what we're trying to do in other groups across the country, we're trying to mitigate uh, all of this by just, you know, <laughs> I almost said something inappropriate, but we're throwing everything at the wall um, <laughs> to make <laughs> what sticks and everything at the census. And that's what we'll be doing. And we're also fighting uh, to try and get the administration to roll this back to, um, to extend the deadline until October 31st. And so hopefully when this airs, we will have the update will be that the census has been extended until October 31st, but we're working under the assumption that we have to end on September. September. What would it take for it to be extended? Would it take an act of Congress? Would it take the head mm -hmm. of the Census Bureau or the administration? Yes. I mean, what are the mechanics of extending it? Yeah, it's an act of Congress. And it's interesting that you say that because this, you know, ahead of the Census Bureau is is like, oh, sure, we can get it done by September 30th. And we should have real talk about why they want to get yeah, it done go so ahead. fast, too. <laughs> um, but, you know, Census Bureau, heads of Census Bureau Commerce Department's past have pretty much all come out and said, absolutely not. You know, the American what Statistical Society has come out and said, this is basically a travesty. Um, you know, the, the nerd side of policy and government going on in America right now is just absolutely absolutely, you know, losing our minds about this because it is, it is so consequential and it is being treated so cavalierly. Um, so I think the, the, the big thing is, is, um, you know, and we are a nonpartisan nonprofit, but the truth of the matter is that politics exist in Washington and people are cutting deals all the time. Um, the process of apportionment is a very choreographed process that happens at the end of every decennial census. So they were supposed to end in July. They were supposed to have five or six months to get all the data together. Around December 31st of every year, the Census Bureau comes out and announces both to the President of the United States and to the people who live in America, this is our final count of how many people live in this nation. And because of this count, we believe each state should get these numbers of congressional seats. The president then takes possession of that data, reviews it, and then transmits it to Congress, where Congress gives it to the states for redistricting. The president has made very clear, the sitting president, that he wants to be able to take possession of that data because he will call from that data whomever he thinks is an undocumented person. And that is why that executive order happened again in August, saying that we should not count undocumented persons. We are setting ourselves up for a constitutional crisis. There are lawsuits all over the places. There are injunctions, you know, that have been filed. There are uh, cases that are being streamlined to the United States Supreme Court right now. But make no mistake, if the census were to go to the recommended deadline of October 31st, then this sitting president would not get his hands on that apportionment data unless he gets reelected in November. In this scenario, no matter who is elected in November, the current sitting president will be able to take possession of this apportionment data. So we can see how the census is sort of the beginning of a cascading effect of dominoes falling all over each other. And I mean, don't even get us started about what's gonna happen with citizen voting age population data and redistricting, but we're really sort of right now facing you know, uh, an inflection point where folks want to overhaul the way our democracy works, who it stands for, and who it represents. 
for the rest of time. And we're at the point right now where we're dealing with the mechanisms that will allow that and whether or not they go through. We don't sleep well, Curtis. <laughs> like, can you give us any this all, I mean, at, at a time when it sort certainly fits into the theme of like, who do you trust? I mean, is yeah. it better to mail your ballot? Is it better to go out and brave the elements and wear a mask and vote in person? Is it better to vote early? Ooh, um, yeah. I mean, there's already this this failure of institutions or failure of people's trust in institutions. Um, and I mean, the post office being a great example of that, I assume the post office situation is impacting the census as well. I, if it's impact, impacting voting and regular mail and package delivery, I assume it's impacting the census too. Are there any silver linings here? Is there something, I mean, I don't think we're supposed to bring everybody down the entire hour. I assume <laughs> there must be something we can do, something we as citizens can do other than what we generally do, which is keep up and stay engaged and try to study the issues and well, give us some good news in the middle of all this. Maybe, I don't well, want to put either of you on the spot, but I see why you don't sleep well at night when you just describe that. It, it's, it's pretty daunting, pretty overwhelming. To I say do the least. have some. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And, and I think to answer the question you asked before, which we didn't answer, which is where is fair count going? Um, because we're at an inflection point in this nation on a variety of fronts, right? You know, there's all the, these last six months have just been, you know, huge for, it will be for generations and, and, and the repercussions that, that will come out of everything. Um, you know, fair count is really looking at what we can do to be part of long-term change. And that is what gets me some sleep at night so that I can get up knowing that we have a plan going forward. You know, in this air is on September 24th, Janine's right. Hopefully the census will go to October 31st. I don't know if that's really going to happen. So we'll have five days to try and get it done. If anyone watching this has not gotten it done, they need to go to my2020census.gov and get it done today. And they should share that with everyone they know. We'll follow up. We'll do all of, all of the good stuff. Um, we're gonna give our staff one day off on Friday, October 2nd, and they're coming back to do GOTV and getting out the count and getting out the vote um, with the same communities that have been historically left behind in the census. These are communities that have higher rates of, of not being registered to vote, have, you know, don't get the resources put in by, you know, civic and electoral infrastructure in order to create the mobilization and the education, uh, you know, things that are needed to get people energized and part of the process. We're going to be working with with uh, those communities and really hoping to energize and get more people to participate in the election and to be able to tie what an election looks like to their lives and why they the, the vote is such an important franchise and then not miss a beat and start to think about redistricting in new ways that this isn't where politicians draw districts so that they can figure out how to keep working but how do we make the people front and center where they're able to choose districts based on communities of need, based on you know unity and things that bring folks together, so that when they have representation, they're actually speaking in the voices of the people that they that they see and hear. And then we're going to continue on with census and American uh, community survey work too. So we see this space to bring all aspects of that civic engagement together, and we know that there's a lot of work. What are the things that make us really happy? Doing this work has so many positive residual effects. One of my favorite stories, when we started Fair Count, we realized that how could people fill out their census online when they didn't have access to the internet? 
So we started creating internet installations all over Georgia. We didn't create them in new places and make people come to us. We talked about to the barbershops where people hung out on Friday nights. We talked to you know, the community centers, to the daycare providers, to the boys and girls clubs. Where are places that people feel safe and comfortable going? Where can we provide? We would, you know, we bought a bunch of iPads, Chromebooks, hotspots, and we paid for the internet to continue in that community through December 31st. One of the best things about these has, has been one, of course, people have been doing their census, but we've also been learning people have been registering to vote. People have been using the internet in their community to create vote by mail or to ask for vote by mail ballots so they didn't have to wait in line in a pandemic. We've held days of actions and job fairs where people have, who have been suffering from unemployment have been able to go out and, and, and help get jobs. And when the pandemic struck, we learned that particularly in, in South and middle Georgia where rural areas were really getting hit by COVID before anybody really had their arms around it, that it was because of these devices that you know communities of faith were able to go online over Facebook and it was keeping communities from getting together in that very dangerous time. We had one story of a pastor who said 40 families would pull up in front of his church every week so their kids could log in and do their homework. These are resources not just to be extracted to get people to do the census. When we look at communities that have been left behind in the census, they have been cut out or have had the franchise stolen from them in a variety of other aspects too. And so building resources and building power and hiring from within those communities and doing that sort of long-term deep dive organizing is showing ripple effects in so many other aspects of life. It's really, it's, it's powerful and humbling. Wow. That is, that is some, um... I would put that in the category of some encouraging news. Um, Janine, do you want to add or I can ask another question? Um, the only thing I would say is, you know, I, I, I'm a scientist. I wasn't, I was very, uh, even though my sister was a politician, um, I was very not into, like, I, I didn't, I paid attention, <laughs> but I wasn't engaged as, as much as, as I am today. And, and that's, that's what I see in other people um, in that, you talk to people that the census isn't sexy guys. It's not, you know, something that people want to talk about every day, but when you are, you know, when you see folks that didn't know the impact that this had had on their life, their entire lives. Um, I was in new Orleans doing a, doing a workshop and there was a 50, I think it was a 54 year old black man who came to one of our black men count. That's one of our, our, um, our initiatives, national initiatives. And um, after the presentation, he uh, he stood up and he said I had, that he had never been counted in the census. He said he didn't think his parents counted him when he was in his 20s and 30s and 40s and 50s. He didn't count himself because he assumed other people were counting him. And it was he was like he just didn't know that his entire life had been impacted and he was ready to go and get to work. And that's something that, you know, whenever I wake up and I, or I, you know, and I'm feeling down, I think about the people who the light bulb came on and it's not just for the census. And that's what we really try to do is tie all of this together. It's not just for the census. It's about voting. It's about being involved in the redistricting process. It's about being civically engaged. And, you know, that's the stuff that makes me happy is that I can, yeah. I can see that light bulb go off in people's, in people's brains. And so, yeah, that's my happy moment. That's neat. 
Well, it's it's happened with me just in, in getting to talk to you all as we set this thing up and then again today, because, you know, everybody's got so much information barraging at them every day. And how do you how do you get their attention? And what, what, how, how do you take something that's really interesting to nerds and people really into politics and kind of inside baseball stuff? And how do you get it to the point where it becomes an action item for people? People really care. Um, I, I want to focus something else back a little bit on Georgia. I know y'all are nationally oriented. You have different states where you have offices, but I know your, your origins in Georgia and you're certainly still focused on Georgia and we're holding the conference virtually in Georgia. And that is redistricting, which is, you mentioned that about the possession of the data, the ability to excise, use the, the red pencil or whatever to get rid of the undocumented, which will be very, very legally dubious and likely not going to work. But at least it sets a narrative, at least it sets some, a bar to have to overcome and another set of roadblocks and people have to go to court for all that. And there's always uncertainty with that. But how does that affect the state level? You're talking about at the national level, if it's September 30th versus October 31st, and when the data gets transmitted, and then depending on who won, who's going to be in, who's going to be inaugurated, presumably on January 20th, what are the mechanics at the state level? Because I could see a situation not unlike last year, where one of the parties picks up a lot of uh, seats, and if that happens again, then at least as of the beginning of January, that party would be more in control the way it's always worked at the state level. Who, whichever party's in control controls redistricting, which Stacey was uh, frustrated about early in her in her um, uh, career in the, in the state house. How would it work this year in terms of if the census isn't finished, if the data is incomplete, uh, depending on how the election swings in terms of which house is in control, would there still be essentially a lame duck uh, party in power that a couple of weeks from now isn't going to be any power more, they could actually do some things. Is that something y'all are playing out the various scenarios for that in our state of Georgia? Yeah, do you want me to start to name? I, um, so yes, to so many. The thing we're worried about the most and which is happening is something called, we all call it CVAP data, but back a few years back, there was a case in Texas that went all the way to the United States Supreme Court it's called Evan Well. And what that was is it was actually a woman who was an officer of the state Republican Party in, in Texas who, who filed suit and, and basically said, it doesn't seem fair that my representation, also, you know, my state senator, state house and everything, that these districts are made up of people who can't vote. They should only be made up of people who vote. And that's always been sort of like the history of America. We try and get a sense of how many people in the areas, we count people as whole persons. The 14th amendment guaranteed that. And she wanted to challenge that for a couple of reasons. Um, one being that there was this guy, Hoffeller, which if, if, if any of you need like a, a night down a Wikipedia rabbit hole, like a John Grisham novel, take a look at what happened with Thomas Hoffeller, who did all of the research and found out that if we excluded certain people from redistricting, that we would guarantee a more Republican, white, non-Hispanic majority in state legislatures for generations. And then he was died. Was he the North Carolina? Was he the um, North Carolina? Yeah, he, I don't know if he was there. His daughter... Yeah, his daughter, his daughter, yeah. Found thought, his dump drives and gave him to the news. Yeah, fascinating stuff. But yeah, um, so anyhow, so this case went up to the Supreme Court. It's called Evanwell, and Evanwell basically said, "No, in Congress, you have to count whole, whole people, but 
not to totally sure about state legislatures and they left the door open. And since then, there's been a lot of interest um, and sort of special interests who are trying to get states to move towards citizen voting age population, which means that you have to be somebody who um, is illegally able to vote and of 18 years or older in order to be counted in, in redistricting, which would cut out children from the story of America, undocumented folks, people who are on visas, et cetera. It would dynamically change the makeup primarily of areas where folks like that are more in numbers. So cities and um, metropolitan areas and everything, all of a sudden districts are going to have to grow to expand um, in ways that they had not had to before. Georgia, Burtis, is going to be ground zero for this. Our state constitution is one of the only ones in the nation that does not say that we count all people. It just says that we use decennial census information. So they could go in the dead of the night when they do their conference committee reports and totally switch it to CVAP without anyone even knowing, without ever having a public conversation about it. Texas is in the same boat. They're gonna try and do it in Missouri up on the ballot this year in 2020. And we're watching that really closely because it's not about immigration. It's not about who's documented, who's not. It's about getting an idea of who lives in a certain area and what those needs are. You know, right. if 50% of right. the people there are children and undocumented and they're not counted, then how are we making decisions when a hurricane comes through and we have to come up with an evacuation plan and we only know that there's 50% of the people that are there, people are gonna die. You know, I mean, how do we fund schools, hospitals, et cetera? But that's the road we're going down and that is the road where Fair Count is going to fight harder than we ever have before. So do you, I mean, you're not giving them any ideas, I'm sure. I'm sure that it's just something they're actually, conceivably this is something that would happen post November 3rd, but yeah. pre, yeah inauguration of the new state house yeah. so obviously when they wouldn't do it in advance they would only do it once they were lame ducks wow that's that's pretty chilling stuff that's not doesn't seem like uh the u.s <laughs> united states or what we've thought of as democracy it wow would, it would dramatically overhaul democracy and and who who we think matters and counts and how we move forward and I think, yeah. you know, we'll see, I, I would not be surprised if some states are successful in it. You know, there are, there are a bunch of legislative advocacy organizations that this is their number one thing is to get states ready to do this uh, for, for partisan game now, um, but, you know, to the detriment of democracy and everyone later. Wow. Wow. That's pretty sobering. That's an, that's an angle of this. I, I've learned a lot, this whole conversation, but that's definitely one I had not not realized. I assume there may be something like that up, but just to hear it explain the way that could happen and the fact that the Supreme Court has left that door open, that's, that's pretty chilling. So what else? What else do y'all want to tell us about census, about um, uh, the upcoming week before the census closes, unless there's been some miraculous breakthrough to where it's been extended to October 31st? Anything else for the good of the order? Um, or questions for me or what do you, we, we, I think we have a few minutes we're supposed to wrap yeah, up. Yeah, I do feel like, Bertus, I feel like one thing that I love talking to you about and I think is so important and we're seeing this play out not just in civic engagement but in all the issues everywhere, you know, that, that, we're, that we're, you know, working on um, is this intersection of art 
and 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 politics and civic engagement and statement making. And we've seen so much this this summer um, that has been, you know, whether it's Black Lives Matter on the street or, you know, new murals that go up or songs that are written. Um, I mean, you know, maybe we should all be singing it's the end of the world as we know it, we feel fine, but um, you know, yeah. how, do you, how do you sort of reconcile and how do you think art can maybe help see us through this? I guess looking back in history, certainly artists are kind of at the forefront of where, where people are. They just have a, a way of expressing things, maybe ahead of their time, maybe, um, maybe somewhat prophetically. It's certainly if it's good art and it gets through and it, it, it gets popular, then obviously it's something people pay attention to, people care about, people identify with. It's, that's their band or their artist or their uh, book. Uh, it's just, it's a way, I think, um, I, I can't, it's one of those things that's hard to explain. It's just, it's just a fact um, that over time, artists have often, uh, cultural change has often presaged um, political change and been part of these movements. Uh, and you know, that's, that's my best explanation for it. I'm sure there are people who've written really good PhD dissertations and books about all that. Um, but just, just the era of music I've been associated with, with music um, and, and rock music in particular, but certainly these days with all the various genres of music, the types of artists out there, they have a voice, they have a platform, they have followers and, and on social media, and um, they can help point people in the right direction. People are overwhelmed, people are feeling lack of trust. Uh, they become kind of their own institutions and, and have their own credibility and people really care about what they think. So that's a, that's a, it's a powerful medium. Yeah. Janine, you've been doing a lot of work with Black Theater United too, haven't you? Yeah, so um, my fun fact about me is that in addition to uh, biology, I also minored in theater when I was in college. Oh, um, cool. And so I really, um, in the theater courses that I took, some of the courses were about, the, it was called the art of transformation. And there was a lot of work on, you know, how do we use theater to advance, you know, um, some of these, you know, political or civic engagement or just like what is going on in the world like how do we how do we use art to address these issues and I think that you know what you're saying like when you have the creativity I think a lot of times people think about when you think about you know civic engagement and politics you think about you know like how do we you know st strategy and uh and data and all of these things but how do you tie all that together with creative outlets, um, whether that be through music, through theater, through, um, through writing, you know, like how do we communicate these messages to people in ways that they will pay attention and listen and then engage. And so just like you said, I think that there are a lot of creative minds out there. Uh, Rebecca mentioned that we have been working with Black Theater United. So Broadway has been shut down because of the pandemic. And so this organization was founded, you know, in the midst of all of this, because they were like, we have to do something. And, you know, one of the collaborations that we did was with uh, Billy Porter and Misty Copeland. Uh, and so Audra McDonald, who's one of the founding members, uh, got all this organized and they, we had a um, There's Only One Me campaign where Billy Porter uh, got out there and talked about being, you know, 
uh, the, how he was unique and why people needed to be counted. And there's tap dancing going on and music playing in the background. Then you have Misty Copeland on another one that you know really spoke to me because I didn't know we were the same age. She's like, you know, they're black woman born in 1982. And I was like, that's me. And then she's like, but there's only one me, you know, there's only one, you know, I'm an athlete, I'm this. And, you know, I really, and and she's dancing and twirling. And it's just something that I think people, you know, and it wasn't, we didn't do message testing on this, but I think it has just been so, so powerful that people would, you know, and the, the, you know, people looking at themselves and being like, yeah, there's millions of black women that are born in 1982, but there's only one Janine that, uh, you know, is a scientist and loves theater and wishes in another dimension, she's a Broadway star. Like those are the kinds of things that, you know, I think really reach and, you know, really reach people. And you can't get that through strategy. You can't get that through analyzing data. You can only get that through creativity. And that's where I think art um, of all forms is just, uh, is needed and uh, impactful. Yeah, I totally agree. I didn't even know about that, but I can see every every Misty Copeland, Billy Porter fan in the world knows about what you just, Yeah, I know who they are. I, I'm aware of them, and, but I'm not on their list. I'm not, I'm not seeing their feed. And, um, but I think that's, uh, it's, it's very impactful when artists speak from their hearts like that. And you're right, it's not the kind of thing that can be message tested and let's get this, you know, let's, let's hit the, the right marks. I mean, it just has to flow. And I feel like in this world of everything flowing, all these different niches, um, that, that the arts can be a really powerful mobilization tool. It really can be something that, uh, that, that helps uh, turn public opinion. Well, with, a, um, with under a week to go till the evidently the putative end of the census counting, uh, this has been really um, inspirational for me to get to talk to the two of you and see what you're doing uh, and to hear more about the way Fair Count is approaching this. And it sounds like you will be busy after, yeah, you said you're gonna be busy after the second, which you'll take that day off. You'll be back at work and um, uh, plenty plenty of work to do uh, moving forward. Uh, any final thoughts about um, about any of this? It's been, uh, I've really enjoyed getting to talk to y'all and um, uh, look forward to hearing, you know, as the month unfolds uh, and then as the fall unfolds, uh, uh, democracy in action. Janine, Rebecca? I would say uh, thank you. This has been a, you know, thank you for taking time to talk to us. Uh, This has been a, I really enjoyed this conversation. Um, The one thing I would say, five days out, right? So this is where everybody that's watching this comes into play. Uh, We, you know, we, we had, we've had text banks and all kinds of things going up into, um, to this date, but in the next five days, you can do your own outreach. You can get on social media and share. We have five days until the census ends. We, you can text everybody in your phone um, about this. If you're driving around town, you can go get something and you know the little car marker stuff and write on there, don't forget to take your census. There are things that people can do and we really need to, um, uh, we had a we had a, an event with another artist. Um, it was with Audra McDonald and um, F- Felicia Rashad. And one of the things Felicia Rashad said was, "We have to also get outside of our, you know, n- not necessarily our bubbles, but people have different life trajectories. People have different stories and histories. 
we had to get outside of our comfort zone and talk to people um, that we might not normally talk to. Uh, and I'll and 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 encourage them to tell other people. And I'll just say this one story. I was uh, driving or we were getting ready to go somewhere and I had a flat tire. My husband was putting air in the car in, in my tire. And this really like, you know, <laughs> this car pulled up with, you know, these two uh, two guys in it. And they were, you know, they we were he was putting in the air in the air in the tire. And the, I had a fair count sign on the side of had the magnet on the side of my car. And so um, one of the guys says, he's like, hey, what's fair count? You know, and my husband says, oh, you know, this, we don't know these dudes like <laughs> they just pulled up beside us. And he's like, oh, this is a nonprofit um, to make sure that everybody's counted in the census. Have you been counted in the census? And at, the guys were like, yeah, we did it already. And, you know, and then so he said, all right, then you need to go and tell other people to be counted. And it's that kind of thing. You know, you have to we 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 all have a role to play in this. And you don't have to be a part of fair count. But if you can just tell everybody you see <laughs> that they need to get counted in the census, I think it'll make a massive difference around. And those, those practical types of personal sharing, which are very powerful in groups of people, yeah. they can go to your website. They can go to the fair count website yeah. to mm -hmm. see a checklist, to see you know, yes. samples of what they could do. I mean, there's this toolkit there that you can go yeah. and put into practice yourself. Yes. That's great. Good. And the, the only thing I would add too, I've had, I've had so much fun talking to both of you today. Um, we didn't really talk uh, about how um, the first step towards our recovery from this pandemic is really the census. And I just want to stress that because when we do get on the other side of this, we're going to need to make sure we get to send our kids back to schools that are funded and that, you know, hospitals are not going to be on the brink of closing. We just lost two hospitals in Georgia in the past month, two rural hospitals you know, we're going to have to make sure that there's an economy ready, that people are ready for jobs. And, and the way that we do that is to get counted by the census. There's actually no easier way to start our road to recovery from COVID than to go ahead and get counted in the census to make sure that all those resources will come down to our communities. Um, they're very, very dependent on one another. Um, but we, uh, we thank, we thank y'all so much, Bertus, we thank you so much yes. for for facilitating this and um, to Sean and Tristan and our good friends at the Communications Network. This has just been such a delight to be able to participate in this conversation. Please visit us at faircount.org um, you know, to, to keep abreast. And if there's anything you wanna do for the last five days, please go to my2020census.gov and do your census. 10 minutes, totally safe. Gives you all the power in the world, all the resources and the political power that democracy is able to give to one person at a time happens during that 10 minutes. So please make sure that you and everybody are counted. Well said. I've never thought this much about the census, but I think these days we all have to, we need to. So thanks for uh, informing us, educating us, and thanks for all the work you're doing um, to make sure we get a fair count. Um, bye everybody, have a great rest of the conference, thanks. Thank you. Thank you.